Evolutionary.org presents Evolutionary Hardcore Podcast with your co-hosts, Steve from the American Underground and Mobster from the UK Iron Den. Get ready for the most hardcore and underground info in the industry. And here we go. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6... Evolutionary.org hardcore podcast coming away. Steve Schmee and, of course, the mobster in the house. Wait, wait. And today we're going to do episode 189 is going to be Joe Rogan. We're going to talk a steroid cycle. Uh, we're going to talk about his life. Mobster has a lot to say about him. Uh, we're going to talk about... Um, his steroid cycle. We're going to talk about two, two steroid cycles. Steroid cycle, he ran maybe when he was a little younger because he's now 54. So he's getting, he's getting up there. Um, and we're going to talk about what he, we think he could be. We'll speculate on what he could be running today in terms of his TRT because he has talked about TRT on his podcast when he's uh, interviewed people um, in the fitness community. So Joseph James Rogan is his full name, goes by Joe, August 11, 1967, Newark, New Jersey. So as I said, 54 years old, as of this podcast. So he's in his mid-50s. Um, you know, he's never like this incredible athlete um, at all, but he is very much into fitness stuff. So, you know, a little bit about him. He is currently doing very well as a color commentator for UFC. He's doing well as a host of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. And he discusses a lot of things on his podcast, things that are controversial, things that are fun, things that really draw in. And his main demographic is the male demographic, um, mostly middle-aged men, but also young and old as well. So he brings in quite... The demo, the demo that you always want to bring in when you're looking for ratings on these types of podcasts are the, you know, the 16 to 50 year old group. You know, that's the ones that kind of drive advertisers. So if you are in a type of show, you do a show that drives advertisers. That's the that's a demo you want to get. He definitely gets a big chunk of that for his. Yeah. You know, in his thing, he's also done comedic stand-up comedian. He's also done acting, and he's also done a lot of television work as well. So I bring in Mobster to touch a little bit about a, a that, and then I'm going to kind of get into his early life because it's always interesting to hear Mobster how they started out. And he has a couple of years ago signed hundred million dollar contract for his podcast. So it's it's uh it's really something that he's uh, been, he's found his niche for sure. And he's been successful at it. I'll jump in here now, Steve. So one of the things that we do with the pre-show research is you look at uh, other websites for sources of information. And uh, as an example, uh, is it one website gave uh, a gross of $100,000 per episode being earned by the web, by the actual YouTube channel and other channels that he puts it out on as of March 2022 for that statistical information. And uh, according to a February 2022, that's 
this this year as we do this podcast a million downloads a month steve so there you go if you're an advertiser like steve says you're looking for disposable income and joe is getting it i would argue uh I, and i believe i don't think it's uh, inarguable in, indeed steve that he's probably the most successful part of that reason guys as with any of this particular stuff if you get in at the beginning if it was crypto you want it to be in the beginning if it was podcast you want to be doing it five ten years ago and joe i believe started it it's hard to believe where he is now, Steve, but he started in 2009. And he does, on average, again, this is information from other sources, three or so podcasts a week. So that's arguably $300,000 a week being earned by the advertising that is associated with his uh, channel. So there you go, guys. We're looking for it when we do this podcast. If you're out there doing vlogs, videos, podcasts of your own, five minutes, 10 minutes, half an hour, if it's cars, if it's drugs, if it's decorating houses, if it's decorating and selling houses, you're looking for a niche, you're looking for a way in. Joe has that secret. He's got it down pat. Uh, the other thing I, which I'll get into in a minute, Steve, is I, for the pre-show research again, I wasn't really that interested per se in the daily, weekly, monthly subject matter, but more the fitness side, his journey, and how he gets into it. And, and, and I was interested in interviews for different people. Most of these are from the Joe Rogan experience, four minute samples of the longer hour long, half hour long videos, where he talks about how he persuades himself to get into the gym, how he gets it done, and so on and so forth. And as I said to Steve in the pre-show, I, I love how that information applies to you guys, you the listeners. So I think there's a lovely turn of phrase that we could probably patent, Steve. You said, if you are a Joe, like Joe, then the information we're going to do in today's podcast is valid for you. So when Joe talks about fitness, when Joe talks about training, when Joe talks about shape, whether we talk about TRC in the past, TRC now, what drug cycles he may or may not have used to get into shape, so much of that's going to apply to you. A lot of our podcasts, we're talking about professional bodybuilders, top, top level athletes. Joe isn't. So, so much of what we're going to talk about with Joe will apply to you. There's the value, guys. So pay attention as we get into it. Back to you, Steve. Yeah, so let's talk about his early life and and um, ethnicity, uh, being from New Jersey. Uh, those of you who live there, visited, or you have um, friends that you know from there, big Italian population uh, there over there in New, New Jersey, New York area. He's three quarters Italian and he's got one quarter Irish descent. His father worked as a police officer in Newark. His parents divorced when he was five. And he has not been in contact with his father since he was seven. So that's that's really, really interesting. Wow. And he talks about his father being a violent man. Uh, beating on his mom beating on him and um but he says look at the end of the day i don't hate the guy he's still he's still my father and at the end of the day he said that you know it is what it is so you know sometimes you can look at your childhood and say the negative things that happened to your childhood and that can become a 
cycle, you know, it's a cycle. Um, my father, you know, my father was a domestic abuser. He was an asshole. He was a fascist. I'm going to grow up, get married, have kids, and I'm going to be the same way. And I'm going to continue that cycle because I guarantee you his father, his father's father was like that. And his father's father's father was like that and so on. So you can either continue the cycle or you can break it. And as far as I know, although, you know, Mobster and I don't necessarily agree or disagree with the stuff that Joe says on his podcast, obviously. And I hope when you listen to our podcast, you don't agree with everything. You're not a sheep because we don't believe in that, Mobster and I. We believe in no, 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 you no. being yourself. But at the end yeah, of the day, yeah. at the end of the day, look. As far as I know, Joe hasn't become that type of person himself. And he's been married since 2009 to a lady named Jessica Ditzel. He's got two children. And there's been no, I, I, you know, I'm not aware of it, of any type of aggression or violence in his life. So it's not like he grew up to be like Mike Tyson, just a, a head case, you know? So in his situation, he was able to reverse that cycle and that, that I definitely give him credit for. So I'm going to talk a little bit about that. And I'll continue and talk about how he developed into this um, talent as he got older. I tend to, Steve and I do agree on certain particular things. And I think some of what we got to argue about uh, is uh, our personality types. And I think Joe actually falls into this as well. So I would say that we are, by definition, very demanding, we're doing podcasts, we're talking to you guys. There's an element of our personality, which is what you would call A-type personality. So, you know, we're arguing a toss. We're, we're more likely to lead than follow and so on and so forth. And I think Joe falls in that particular category. So one of the things that I see from time to time, and that's just through friends, family, uh, associates, whatever, and that's on the forums, listening to people, seeing comments on podcasts and whatever else. And some people allow certain particular elements of their life to define them, right? I take drugs because uh, some such such was a dickhead 47 million years ago, and I haven't been able to get over it. Or I become a billionaire because my daddy wasn't around when I was a kiddie, and I want to prove everybody wrong, et cetera, et cetera. You can, you can use the things as a negative. You can use things as a positive. For me, sometimes it's difficult in my personality and my life experiences to understand something that makes me depressed or want to take drugs or abuse alcohol or do stupid shit or become an abuser or aggressive type personality uh, with my family, my friends, whatever else. Uh, you know, I'm not saying I don't have any particular, you know, sins, singular once in a blue moon, once, you know, once in a decade or whatever else, but I don't allow these things to define me. I'm not doing these things on a regular basis and, 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 and so on. So, you know, I get, as an example, Steve, my parents were married for 47 years before my dad passed away. And as I, of the four brothers, including myself, only one of us has got married. So, you know, that we should all be married and, and sticking together 20, 30, 40 years if, if we're defined by what our parents do. Guys, you don't need to be like that. If there's a negative in your life, you can use it as a positive and make you motivate you to do better and, and, and whatever else. And equally, if there's a negative in your life, you also don't need to have it be something like a millstone. So much of the time with these things, and I think I mentioned this on one previous podcast, it's like 
what the, the, there's a phrase which is called carrying the world the weight of the world on your shoulders will put the fucking weight down. The only person who's getting truly destroyed by that is you. And sometimes it is literally allowing it to define you, almost making a choice to keep that weight on your shoulders and not put it down. It's less of an issue here in the UK. But again, as per usual, and I've mentioned this in multiple podcasts, we tend to follow the US where it's almost a comedy thing that's used in programs in the States where everybody seems to need to have to go to therapy to discuss stuff. No, you fucking don't. You just don't. One of the great things, and I think Joe is going to exemplify this, is that if we've got shit going on in our life, we go to the gym, we smash the bag, we do what Joe does, we do Brazilian jiu-jitsu, we lift weights, and we feel great after, and it's such a positive thing. So when we're talking about it, including Joe's journey today, going to the gym and doing what you need to do in your chosen field is a great way to get rid of that stress. It's a great way to get rid of that aggravation. So if you've got any angst because daddy wasn't around or he was an aggressive dick or whatever, you don't allow that to define you. And if it is something that's a bit of a burden, go smash the bag, go do some grappling like Joe, go lift some weights, get it out your system, move on and be a positive role model. We, imagine, Steve, if 50, 60, 100 of our listeners are out kicking ass and become role models. That's an influence. And Joe could argue the same thing. If he's able to, and I will get into the specifics in a little while, motivate some of his listeners to go train, to lose weight, to get into shape and to overcome issues in their life. When you've got arguably a million downloads a month. If he just influencing a thousand people in a positive way, what a role model. So that's for us. It's for you, Steve. It's for me. It's for our listeners. And Joe's definitely doing something like that. Back to you. So he spent his years from age seven to his early teens in San Francisco. Then his family moved to Gainesville, Florida, of all places. It's kind of like a horse part of uh, Florida, where University of Florida is located, um, up in uh, north central Florida. Then he settled in Newton, Upper Falls, Massachusetts, which is near Boston. And that's mm-hmm. kind of where he gets that personality. He has, a, he has a personality. He comes off a little bit West Coast, but it, yeah. again, he comes off a little bit East Coast. So that's kind of why, if you ever listen to him and his accent and the way he conducts himself, Maybe that's kind of why, because he moved around a little bit. He went to a, a Newton South High School, and he graduated in 1985. And some of the things that he did growing up, a Little League Baseball, which is really popular in the Northeast. Um, he did martial arts in his early teens. He said that he was terrified of being a loser as a child. That was his quote. And the reason he got into martial arts was because it not only gave him confidence, but it was also a different perspective of himself and what he was capable of. And he said it was very difficult and it was something he could excel at. And he was, uh, he was pretty good at it. So, and then uh, when he was 14 years old, he got into karate, karate and then he got Taekwondo, karate, karate, karate. It depends on how you want to pronounce it, Taekwondo. And then he was 19. He actually won Mobster, the U.S. Open Championship Taekwondo Tournament as a lightweight. Very nice. So full contact state champion in Massachusetts for four consecutive years. 
And then he actually became a Taekwondo instructor. So very much into it. Two and one record as an amateur kickboxer. He retired from competing at 21 years old because of headaches. So I guess he got hit in the head a little too many times, which is unfortunate. He attended the University of Boston, Massachusetts, but he dropped out. And then he lived in Boston until he was 24. So, you know, he took kind of the, the hustler route in life. And, you know, we'll talk a little bit about his next career choices that started in the late 80s. But, Mobster, you want to jump in? I'm going to jump in here just for literally a few seconds here, Steve. What's interesting for me, especially with the martial arts, with the karate, the taekwondo, and even the Brazilian jiu-jitsu, which is his thing now, is that arguably with certain martial arts, and in fact, we could, me and you have talked about this, I believe, before, with any athletic endeavor that's taken to a certain particular level, specifically competing and or teaching, as he's done, as you've just talked about, there's a spiritual element. Uh, there's an, an understanding of what you become capable of. I've talked about, for example, on forums, I say, if you really want to find out how good you are, compete. You know, it's one thing to go to the gym and lift and be, say, perhaps one of that 5% of the guys in the gym. But if you want to see if you're, as we say here in Wales, tidy, you need to compete. You need to get onto the platform. You need to get into the ring. You need to get onto the mat at the dojo. You need to do it and you need to compete because someone else is going to try and kick your ass. Then you truly see where you are. So there's, a, there's an element of that. And I think one of the things that we've, I think Arnold Schwarzenegger talks about is where you go, right, you take the elements of what made you successful as in Arnold's case, a professional bodybuilder, and you apply that same mindset, that same dedication, that sense of purpose, that ability to get outside of the normal and the average and become something special. And you put that in, in his case, movie roles or uh, buying property, making money out of property and doing business deals. And, and ultimately, of course, with Arnold again, politics. So there's an argument there for me. It's interesting with Joe. He's taken the sports, karate, taekwondo, probably more so Brazilian jiu-jitsu to a slightly lesser degree with the spiritual element, the, the sometimes the chi that they talk about in martial arts. The understanding that you're not dead, you can get back up, you can fight. And if you can do that when you're when uh, shit's up against you in business, in the podcast that he does, et cetera, et cetera, when it's not successful and keep grinding and keep pushing, then ultimately you end up competing and teaching and becoming, as he has done it with his podcast, very successful. And as I said, in, in, in the, the, the training stuff, which I'll get into momentarily, um, he talks about main, the, the motivation to train, the motivation to get in the shape, the motivation to stick the diets. So that, to me, comes from that spiritual element and understanding of what you are capable of. And as, as a good example of that, we see occasionally his motivational videos, Steve, not for Joe, but for, for when we see guys that are disabled, male and female, disabled, missing limbs, and they're taking part in, in, in tough mudders, or uh, they're crawling up a mountain, and you go, okay, so I'm tired, but I'm walking up a mountain, and there's this person going past me with stumps, no arms, no legs, uh, artificial aids, and they're passing me. What is my, my excuse becomes invalid. So the idea, as he says, uh, that he's taken from those spiritual elements of those sports and allowed that mental aspect, the, the positive stuff's going, if, if when it's horrible, when it's hard, when it's tired, when it's blah, 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 
when you've got all your million excuses, when all the stuff of daily life grinding you down and you still get to the gym and get your shit done, that comes from that spiritual element. So I want to get into that specifically in a moment, Steve, but I like that. I might not listen and like everything that he does on his podcast, but I like this aspect. This is the Joe that I like. This is what he does. And this is where, again, when you've got a million downloads a month, that is a such a positive influence in, on the physical side. And that comes from what we all can share with him, guys. You want to see how good you are? Go compete. You want to see how good you are? Go teach and get them to compete and, and get into that spiritual side because that's where that sort of extra inch, half inch, one kilo, one pound, whatever you want your, your target is, comes from the grind, the, the heart and soul stuff, Steve. When you and I don't want to do things and we still get it done. He's doing that. He's done it in the past. He's doing it now. So, yeah, I love this stuff. I really do. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk about his next ventures in life. And then we'll kind of get into his stats. And then Mobster will touch on some more stuff and we'll get into his steroids. And um, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to talk about his steroids at his peak size. And we're going to talk about the steroids we think he might be doing on sports TRT now that he's in his mid fifties. Cause he does talk about sports TRT, but first we got to get into, you know, how he got to where he is. So he had no intention of being a stand-up comedian professionally, none. He wanted to do kickboxing. He was really into it, but he was also a big fan of doing comedy from a young age. His big inspiration was Richard Pryor. And those of you in the UK, I don't know if you guys know who Richard Pryor is. Do you know who oh, he is? Yep, yep, yep. We know oh, okay. You guys know. And he, yeah. um, I, I'll say uh, with Richard Pryor, yeah, he was one of the best, uh, considered one of the best stand-up comedians, especially of his era. Yes. And uh, let's see here. It says that he was a big, always a clown, always making his friends laugh. Always making the th- the people at his Taekwondo studio and his gyms laugh, and he that's that's the type of personally he personality he was for sure. So he did his first stand up routine in August of 1988 at an open mic night at a comedy club in Boston. Now i'll caution you doing something like this is very risky because uh you can embarrass the shit out of yourself because sometimes you know we think things are funny in our own mind and then when we say it you know other people they don't find it funny so a lot of these stand-up comedians they do it and they basically get booed off stage no one's laughing and they just they crash and burn so you have to work on it. It's something you definitely have to work on. And to make ends meet while he was doing that, he was a martial arts teacher at Boston University. He delivered newspapers. He did the old uh, driving a limo thing. Today, instead of driving a limo, what do people do, mobster? They do Uber, right? Yeah. Yeah. So there's always been that aspect. I know people myself who've been in between, you know, in between jobs or they've, they've been, they're, they're starting a new job. They're not making money yet. Who've also done something like that. And that's, there's nothing wrong with that because there's always a demand for that out there. And it's one of those jobs you can, you can make a steady paycheck with it. Um, He he did, he did construction work. He did some PI work. And 
he started to get some more gigs, you know, at bachelor parties, at strip clubs. He knew how to kind of make that group of people laugh. And, you know, when I was reading this in the pre-show, I, I started to think of, you know, some of the other guys who, who did the stand-up comedy and how they started out too. And it makes me wonder, it made me wonder. So I went and kind of looked at how some of the other stand-up comedians also started. Some of the stand-up comedians that are big today, how they started, the Amy Schumers, the Bill Mars, you know, those types of guys. And um, I always found it fascinating how, because you gotta, you gotta start down there and you gotta kind of work your way up. And once you get to an optimal level, you can start making a fortune selling tickets for people to come out and watch you basically make jokes on stage. And that's, that's the, that's the gig of it. What's so, the name of the uh, host, Steve, what's the name of the host that does family fortune in, in America, Steve something. Family. Uh, we don't have a, yeah, family, family feud. Fortune. Feud. Yeah. Cause it's probably called something different in the States. Steve something. What's his name? Harvey, Steve Harvey. Yeah, Steve Harvey, right. So Steve Harvey did exactly the same thing because he's actually yep. tried the comedy route before become Family Feud host. And the story goes, he tells this. It's, it's, there's a lovely video, guys. You can find this online. He talks about becoming a comedian and working at it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the audience, he's crying. The audience are crying. And all they're doing is just changing the set because they're setting up for another show. So his first year, his wife allowed him. He says, she let me because he could have earned a salary doing a normal job or whatever. She let me try to become a professional comedian. So the first year, he would earn $150 a week. And he was paying for hotels or whatever. Sometimes he was sending back $30. I think he said the first year he earned $7,000. The second year, he says, I was much more successful. Audience laugh, $10,000. So in other words, I think the average US salary is $60,000 a year now. His first two years together, it's about a quarter of that, Steve. That's how bad it was. But obviously, you learn. You are in a crucible of fire. And you learn what works and what doesn't work. You learn, if anything else, which is precisely the point of the show, of course, he's learned how to talk to people, how to read an audience. So whether that's the comedy stuff that Joe does or whether it's doing the podcast or whatever else, it's tuning in what works and what doesn't work and honestly as you said you if you if you a fragile ego you you will get booed off there will be slow lights there will be jokes at work you cannot let that stop you and but you have to become successful otherwise get the fuck out of there and go and do something else like flipping burgers at mcdonald's because trust me guys if you feel not many people are going to have steve Harvey's wife backing them up for two years until you start earning 30, 40, 50,000 dollars a year or more or get a show like Family Feuds or get a podcast like Joe's. So but Steve, what a hard, hard way and a living if you're if you if you don't really know what the hell you're doing and you think you're funny. Because as you say, you got guys that are drunk, you've got guys that are waiting for the strippers to come on, especially with the ones you've already mentioned, the stuff that he did, it started to pay him bucks. And, and you're doing all these things to try and pay for the dream. And so is, there's, a very, there's a big element there of doing what needs to be done in order to pay for the thing that gets you juicy, gets you where you want to go. So, you know, I, mean, I can imagine that Joe especially imagined himself, as we've already said, that, you know, his karate, taekwondo competing, that was his dream at the time. Black belt, kicking ass, 
the next Jean-Claude Van Damme or whoever, versus the journey that took him to becoming the podcaster supreme, the uh, UFC announcer uh, uh, and host, and doing his other things, and a comedian. Uh, none of these things were probably in his mind early on. It's the journey that he ended up going. That's even for myself and for Steve Schmier, I'm sure that when we were at school, we wasn't imagining that we're going to be doing podcasts like this. It certainly wasn't in my mind, Steve. So the journey that life takes you, the allowances, if you're lucky in that particular position like Steve, to have a supportive wife, or, or, and a you know, journey from wanting to be an ass-kicking martial artist to ended up being a, a, an amazing host on the podcast. It's, 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 but life has taught him how to do that thing. The stuff that he's got from comedy shows it allows him to sit there and talk to people and him talk to an audience that you cannot see and to tune into that kind of stuff and to know what works and what doesn't work. Back to you, Steve. Yes. Next one we're going to talk about is his um, relocation. So he started out in New York City, full-time comedian, stayed with his grandfather in New York, in Newark, New Jersey, for the first six months. And then he went to L.A., 1994. He got in the MTV show, Half Hour Comedy Hour, it was called. And he got a three-year exclusive contract. Nice. And it, it was a $500 contract on a pilot episode of something called Dopey Game Show. So he declined it, but it, it prompted the producers to send tapes of Rogan's performance to several networks. And then they started bidding on his services. So he got in, he got a development deal with Disney and he got his first major acting role in a nine episode Fox sitcom called Hardball, a young egocentric star player on a professional baseball team. So, um, you know, that, that was kind of how he got started out, for sure. It doesn't seem like he had a lot of friends in the industry that could kind of give him a leg up on other people. He had to kind of grind his way. So for that, you know, I got to respect him for, for sure. And um, he started performing at the Comedy Store in Hollywood. And he was hired as a paid regular by the owner. And he performed at this club for the next 13 years for free. And paid wow. for the venue's new sound system. So this is kind of how he got. Yes, that's what you got to do, man. Like, that's what you got to do. It's either you do stand-up comedy for free or no one will ever hear of you. So at least that way he was able to get a lot of exposure. He then starred for four years in the NBC sitcom News Radio. I don't know if you've ever heard of that one, Mobster. As an electrician and handyman at the show's fictional news radio station. And the actor Ray Romano, you know who that is? Yes. He's actually let go from the cast after one rehearsal, and then they brought <laughs> Rogan in to take his place. Wow. wow. <clears throat> so he actually got to develop the character in the process. So a dumbed down, censored version of himself. So I can see him playing that role. I can see him playing that role. He also got connections. He befriended Phil Hartman. And Phil Hartman was a Canadian-American actor who was, um, you know, who was able to kind of help, help network to him. 
confided his marital problems with him. They became good friends. Um, he tried to convince him to divorce his wife five times, but he didn't want to leave. And I don't know if you, if you heard of that story, but Hartman ended up getting murdered, mobster, by his wife. So I think that that kind of affected his ability to perform stand-up. He got so he, he canceled a week of gigs after that. So as you guys can, can tell, um, you know, it's, it's amazing in life how things like this shit can happen to you, you know? So, so the next step for him, late 90s, he started working for MMA promotion, the UFC. He was a backstage and post-fight interviewer. And that's how he kind of built a big cult following I know my uh, my other co-host of my other podcast, Ricky V. Rock. That's where Ricky V. Rock started to become a, a fanboy of uh, Joe Rogan from watching him on UFC do his interviews. So he was a pretty good interviewer, um, and he kind of um, you know he 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 also did color commentary for UFC very very good so if you if you basically turn on UFC he's kind of like the the Troy Aikman or the Tony Romo of UFC where if you watch UFC you, you would see Joe Rogan so he did a lot of that so mobster you know touch up on a little bit and then we'll um please yep. research again with Joe funny enough it says one of the things was uh, he's asked by one of his guests on one of his shows Steve about what he did or does with the UFC. And he said, you know what, I do it because I love it. I didn't know at the time when I started to get into that. And we could argue about some of the other aspects of his life. Uh, he was doing it because he enjoyed it. Because he said, I have no idea at the time when I started to do those things, because I was doing it because I enjoyed it, that it was going to be as big and or successful as it was. So again, guys, this is choosing a passion that doesn't necessarily make you a great deal of cash. And look, look what we talked about already doing a comedy show in that store for nothing for how many years say 13 years some ridiculous period of time to which allowed them to buy the sound system so doing things because he enjoys doing them maybe because he's covering his ass with his bills doing other things but the ufc role again did not know how big that was going to become did not know how the influential he'd be did not realize the impact he was going to have and 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 the rapport that he has with athletes Something else I made a very quick note of, and it's literally just an interviewer's trick, Steve, is where you quite often plead ignorance on something that you know full well plenty of information about when you're talking to a subject to, to draw them out. So, for example, I don't doubt for a second that he knows the names, the weights, the fights, etc., the successes, the losses of various athletes when he's interviewing them. But I guarantee you there's times when he's talking to them and like I said, classic interviewer trick 101 is, is saying, so tell me about this. Tell me about that. You already know about it. You're leading them, you're drawing them out, and you're getting them to spill their beans and to open up and to tell the audience who might not know. Uh, and, and so there's, there's stuff like that. Joe, obviously, with the, with the comedy experience, it's coming naturally to him. But again, he's chosen to do certain things just because he fucking enjoys them versus knowing at some point, is it is going to become so successful that it's going to be very highly paid, uh, so well known. As an example, Steve, the little bit of show research that I focused on was more to do with his training. I had no idea that he'd done all his acting and TV roles that you mentioned whatsoever. But what a school of learning for him in terms of being out in front of the public, 
from the comedy shows to knowing how TV works, knowing where the camera is, knowing how to let your personality shine, and then being able to do that in the case of the UFC, where you're up against very physical, very driven individuals and allowing your personality to shine and to draw them out and to get them to, to, to do that and be known probably as much for the acting as you are for being on the UFC. And of course, we, we could argue it's very much so, lots of machismo, lots of uh, driven people just coming in from just about to go and have a fight or just got their ass handed to them or one or whatever. And you're there with your microphone and they accept you. You are part of that group and you're able to talk to them and, and come across in a certain particular way. And I would imagine, as I just said, and, and be very well paid for it. But that wasn't what he set out to do. He's done things in his life that had no real guarantee of earning a great income. It's just that he's done those things with such a passion, such an enjoyment, and with all the learning and experience that different jobs have given him that we've mentioned already to get to where he is, that they've become successful. They've become financially successful. They That they pay him a great deal of money. I mean, Steve mentioned it earlier on, $100 million for how many years contract for the podcast for Joe Rogan experience. That is a serious lump of cash for doing something you probably did for free way back in the day, just because you enjoyed it. I mean, that's just crazy, crazy, crazy. Steve, if it's okay with you, I'd like to talk about a little bit of the fitness journey before we get to the to the PEDs, especially. Yeah, let's do that. So I just want to add, um, there's so many Joe Rogan wannabes out there. He's inspired a whole generation of them. Now everybody's doing a podcast about everything. And, um, you know, like I've been to people's houses and you can hear podcasts going in the background. I talked about it with Mobster earlier. You can hear podcasts going and they just play on a loop, different podcasts, you know, and it's all kinds of different genres. And, and there's just something about it that people just enjoy. I personally, like full disclosure, I'm not into the whole like listening to a podcast, which is weird because we do this podcast. So you guys listen to this podcast, <laughs> but most of you are into podcasts. I'm more into the informational podcast. I want, like, I always look for information. So I think if I was on the outside looking in, I think I'd be into this podcast that we do because I like information, but I'm not into yes. the whole, just sit there and gossip and talk to each other for, for an hour. I'm not oh, into the late night shows where they sit down and they talk to a celebrity for 10, 15 minutes. You know, it just never interested me, but it's big with other people. And, um, and like I said, there's a whole bunch of wannabes out there that are trying to be the next Joe Rogan. And just, just letting you know, it's, you know, all this competition, you know, are you going to be able to make a living at it? Highly unlikely. So I would encourage anyone who wants to do this to do what Joe did. And what did Joe do? He had to do a lot of different jobs to work his way up. He had to do a lot of jobs for free to work his way up. He had to take a lot of crappy jobs for 500 bucks, you know, to, to work his way up. You see, well, and he had to Steve. do a lot of things he didn't want to do to work his way up. So do it. I would encourage you to do, do a real job. It. Do it because you enjoy it. I'll give yes, you one example. Exactly. I so why don't you hit I on don't... that? Yeah, hit on that mobster yeah. and then hit I, on the I next don't drive. I've said I've been mentioned. People can't get their heads around the fact that I don't drive. I've never passed my driving test. I own a car, but the girlfriend drives it. And yet, 
one of the, the videos, one of the, 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 the podcasts I watch on a regular basis is Stradman, who's one of the most successful, certainly in the US, uh, car channels. Uh, I believe he has like seven cars as a Bugatti on his drive. He's got the, the, the bug killer that's uh, he's just started using. He's building a house right now, which is going to have a 12 or 15 car garage, right? So I don't drive. And yet not, one of the things I watch on a regular basis is the Stradman on a car channel. And the reason I think the Stradman is successful is the same reason I think Joe's successful is, I'll give you an example, Stradman until he builds his house, he's literally, it's one of these things he keeps talking about, Steve, is he owns a sofa and a dog. He, when he, when he uh, moved into the place, which is rented right now with half a dozen cars on the drive, he has one knife, one fork, one spoon. But he also studied finance at university or college or wherever the hell it was. And so he knows how to move money around. He knows how to make money from the channel. And like most of his money, probably 90% of his money goes on the car seat. But the thing that comes across is he loves driving. He's laughing when he's accelerating in this car or that car. He gets blown away when the cars are uh, refurbed, done up, wrapped or whatever else. And sometimes it's almost a bit too much. But he genuinely likes doing what he does genuinely enjoys it. He loves when he sees young lads with their cameras filming him, all this kind of thing. And he goes to those kind of gigs as well and stops there, brings cars. So what we're talking about here, you're making money from what you enjoy. And if people hook into your enjoyment, they share your passion and they feel that passion and that enjoyment. And like the Strad man, like Joe, that passion. And I'll give you an example, Steve, even with myself, I've been awarded or recognized for my passion when I had my magazine, when I was kicking ass in the most competitions, et cetera, et cetera. So that become recognized by other athletes, especially power athletes, strongman, strength, weightlifting, Olympic weightlifting, powerlifting, and so on. They would recognize me in my niche, which was grip strength, because I was very successful with what I did. And so in other words, you had the same level of obsession, the same passion, the same level of enjoyment. You'd spent the same amount of money to go into things and you become recognized as quote unquote, one of them. Kind of crazy, but doing what you're doing. So the Stradman's kind of crazy, but he's like those fanboys that he sees at these events. Joe's the same. He's doing those $500 jobs. He's doing stuff for free because he enjoyed the comedy. I enjoy doing comedy. I would do it at free because I don't need the money anymore. And that will allow the club to buy the sound system. I'll do that shit for free because I want the club to have a sound system and because I like doing it. And that, that passion, the podcast that we do, we're not talking about this stuff just for whatever we're talking about is stuff because we like what we do. We like the iron game. We like the, the, to talk about performance on arts and drugs. We like to talk about, as in Joe, successful people. It's easy to talk about this stuff, Steve. It's, it's great. It's fun. You and I, we're doing this for fun. We're doing it because we enjoy it. Uh, so that, that needs to come across. And I hope that it does come across, guys. And that's how, if you do become successful, that element, if you, if you don't like doing what you're doing and you're trying to have a successful channel, if it's all too much like work, the video, edit, to set stuff up, to, to talk to the camera, to come across in a certain particular way, you won't be successful. I don't think there's a single channel out there where the person's not enjoying what they're doing. Even if, I mean, let's put this, just the stuff in there. I know that there are channels out there where all that the girls do is model stockings. If that's your thing, you need to be able to enjoy the fact that your legs modeling stockings is something that you like and the audience needs to be able to feel that that's what you enjoy if you're out there and you hate it it's going to come across trust me it'd be a weird kind of a listener or viewer 
or follow over a podcast where they can see that the interviewer, the person doing the show, hates it. I can't imagine that that be successful. So you've got to like it. You've got to enjoy it. You've got to get buzzing off of it. And, and if you're doing that, you can end up, thankfully, as Joe has, in a position where people will pay you for your passion. They will pay you for your joy. So, yeah. I mean, I imagine, for example, just doing his podcast, he's getting to sit down with successful people, millionaires. But he's had Elon Musk, one of, the, one of, if not the richest man on the planet, on the other side of the table. He's had top athletes, professional actors, professional commentators like himself, and he's able to... I mean, that's just an opportunity. Almost the argument we would say is that money cannot buy. It's fantastic. You and I get to talk about successful people. And as if when we do the show research, we get to learn something about them. And we get to tune into that. And we get to pass that information on to you guys. It's fun. You need to enjoy it. That needs to come across. And I think Joe exemplifies that, Steve. Back to you. Yeah, buddy. So um, you want to start getting into his steroids? You ready? I think we're ready. One, one more thing. Yeah, make one, one point. Yeah. Right. So, because we're going to do the steroid and TRT goes. But, right. Listen, very, very quickly, pre show research, Joe talks about training. He says, keep it simple. He's in, a, he's in a dojo five times a week doing BJJ right now. Maybe that'll change in the future. When he talks about training, he says, keep it real simple. So, for example, chin ups, push ups, bodyweight squats. He says, trust me, do 50 reps, 60 reps, 100 reps on bodyweight squats. You'll start to feel it. Don't come up with excuses. He talks about the average Joe talk, uh, drives from the house to the coffee shop, sits down in the coffee shop, drives to work, sits down at work, goes to get lunch, sits down in a cafe, goes back to work, sits on their ass, goes home, doesn't want to do anything, feels real lazy. He says, I went eight or nine times out of 10 when I go to the, go to the Jojo, when I'm doing the BJJ, I'm tired. I've done this show, I've done the interviews, I've done my research, I'm tired. And sometimes, he says, half the time, I don't want to train. But once I get to the gym, once I do what I need to do, I get it done. He was interviewing one young lady and he was talking about uh, her father being overweight and he didn't have the energy. He said, if he's got the energy to go get food, if he's got the energy to go shopping, if he's got the energy to, to tell you he's not got the energy, then he had the energy to go for a walk. He had the energy to go for a run. He had the energy to ride a bike. So it's very much of the no excuses. And as I said earlier in this podcast, when you've got guys out there, ladies and gentlemen, with stumps that are doing tough mudders, when you've got people being carried up, pushed up on a mountain in a wheelchair, being carried on some person's back, and they're going past you on that mountain, then your excuse becomes invalid. So he is a successful guy because he pushes himself. And so it's difficult for him, and I kind of understand it, it can be difficult for if you are successful, if you have been competitive as I have, as Steve has, as Joe has, to understand it's hard to understand why people aren't able to do those things because it's just your choice. Uh, unless you've got a medical condition, and the young lady that you spoke to had one and she'd still become successful, you don't really have this. Have you got a medical condition? No, then what's your excuse? You literally have to have no arms and no legs, therefore you can't lift weights. Uh, you, there's there's a way to be driven. He does it. You'll be tired. There's something missing. You're you're aching. You're hurt. Whatever else, you get your shit done. That's what he does in the gym. Now let's get into the specifics, as you say, Steve, of the TRT pre cycles cycles now, and especially guys, if you're talking about thinking about doing these things, if you're Joe's age, here's the juicy stuff coming right up. 
Yeah, so let's first talk about his Taekwondo martial arts cycle. And, um, you know, his peak stats listed five foot eight, 86 kilos, which is 190 pounds mobster. And um, so he's not this big six foot tall, you know, huge guy like you. He's a little guy, five foot eight. You know, 190 pounds though is solid. And if you look at pictures of him, he's got, you know, he's got he's got some abs on his on his body, even in his 50s. So he's still he's still he still looks good for sure. Um so you know, doing taekwondo, it's very important to be you have to be mobile, you have to have endurance for it. It takes a lot of endurance. You gotta be, you know, capable of being in flight or fight mode for the duration of that fight. And if you fall out of that flight or fight mode, you're going to find yourself on the losing end of, of the fight. So in, in, I think, you know, uh, some of the steroids you want to avoid for sure when you're doing Taekwondo is trend because trend destroys your cardio. So trend wouldn't be something that he would mess around with. I think some steroids that cause crippling pumps would be a problem. And um, I don't think I know because what happens is when you're doing these types of movements, you've got a good chance of developing some pumps like really, really quickly and you're striking and you're getting striked. So I think things like Winstrol, Anavar, those are out of the question because of the pumps that you, you would get on them and any, any steroid that increases pumps. So for me, a good steroid stack for someone who wants to do MMA would be a low dose of HGH, human growth hormone. That's going to help you with your recovery from these nasty fights and putting your body through hell. I think maybe something like two IUs a day of the HGH. And then I think something like equipoise, boldenone, would be really good. Maybe somewhere around 300 milligrams a week of EQ would be really good. That's going to help give you an anabolic and a little androgenic kick. Very, very slight. It's a very mild steroid. It's not going to fuck with your cardio. It's not going to fuck with your endurance. It's going to give you some, some ability to be flexible with not just your training, but also during your fight. And it'll help. It's going to raise your red blood cell count, just like most all steroids do, but it's not going to, on the same, uh, on the same side, give you pumps, give you inflammation in the body, give you all these negative parts. And I think uh, testosterone too, depending on how much you're, you can tolerate. Now, some people can run two, three, 400 milligrams a week of testosterone and not deal with water weight. If you get water weight on testosterone and you get, you know, you do martial arts, you can really screw yourself because in martial arts, you cannot be carrying water weight on your frame. Very, very important. So I think it depends on how you react to testosterone. Also, it depends how you react to testosterone and taking an AI. So I think a guess in his case, I think somewhere maybe 300 milligrams a week, along with a little bit of aromasin would be a good stack for him. So you combine that with the EQ and you combine that with a little HGH. I think that would be a good martial arts stack. Momster, what do you think about a martial arts stack from the guys that you've known who've done martial arts, what do you think they use? I'd agree with you for most of that there, Steve. I was thinking, for example, you definitely couldn't use something like D-Bow, as you mentioned already. So, for example, T-Bow might be more useful. Uh, and I put down here, one of those, it's not a psalm, but it's included in the psalms when we talk about it, GW. Uh, I mean, it very much depends on whether I was doing this stuff as he is now, as a way of keeping in shape versus competing. Uh, and again, I mean, I'll give an example, Steve. So 
it's a damn shame because I've had those pumps. I don't know how bad it is that you can't use Anavar because the pumps would be horrible, especially in the training versus fighting. Funny enough, in the ring, on the mats, the shortness of the fight wouldn't make it that bad. But in the training, the drugs that we've already mentioned, Debo and Var, would be horrendous for the training because of the pumps, because of the debilitating pumps that they are, just how that, that, they fuck you up. So in the training, they would be horrendous because that's repetitive, that's practice, and that's a couple of hours. Whereas if you're actually fighting, those drugs would be great, especially Anavar, for example, because of the strength uh, and, and being able to do those things for just a few minutes. So it might be one of those things where I'd mix it up a little bit. I mean, I haven't actually, I was, I'm telling you, we had one guy uh, training with us in Gloucester. He was actually a televised fighter. I can't remember his name. It was a long time ago, a Polish fella who was doing something with Sky Free Sports over here in the UK. And he came to us to do strength training. And we would do things like, for example, getting a heavy bag, put that on the ground, have him doing uh, ground, ground and pound on the floor, moving, literally dragging the bag around so that he would have to move around on the mat and stuff like this, as well as making him train for longer periods of time on, on bags, in grappling or whatever else he would ever do in the ring. So like I said, drugs that you can train with versus drugs you can compete with. There's a difference right there, Steve. Com competition tends to be short, intense, brutal. And so therefore, a drug that's going to give you a pump's not that bad. By the time the pump kicks in, the match is over. But in terms of training, it's different. So for example, dosages, Steve, again, uh, most fights are bodyweight, whether it's UFC, whether it's MMA, whether it's uh, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, whether it's Taekwondo. Very rarely, fighting, especially when you're competing, it tends to be a person of the same body weight, uh, or, or certainly, obviously, it depends on, again on the, the sport or the niche that you're in, whether it's uh, you versus another black belt. But it's rare, for example, to see a heavyweight versus a lightweight. They tend to match like with like, even in those particular sports. UFC, for example, is all weight categories. And therefore, you're looking at, again, drugs, as Steve said, that I would prefer drugs to give me power and endurance versus muscle size. Uh, I, I'm, I can think of a world's strongest man that does MMA, UFC type uh, competition, and even he come down from 140, 150 kilos to 120 kilos. And to be honest with you, I'm talking about Marius Putzanowski. Uh, it is not the greatest uh, UFC MMA fighter at all, even at 120 kilos. But he looks like a fucking freak when he's in the ring, when he's in in the cage. So it's it's an interesting one, Steve, in terms of what's required in training versus what's required on the day. As an example, when I mean, you talked about this before, uh, I, arguably, because UFC does get tested, MMA does get tested, before testing, I would have, I would have chosen the no-ester drugs, so testosterone, no-ester, for example. I would use something like Halo, or I might even use something like Trek Drops. On the day of a competition or just before a competition, for the increased aggression, for the not worrying about, again, the, the pumps or whatever else, because the shortness of the time that you're in the cage, you're in the ring, you're on the mat, versus what you do in training. So is if, in fact, it's probably, look at it this way, Steve, perhaps a two-structure, like I've mentioned already, training with this particular drug or this cycle versus using different drugs on a different uh, angle on the day for the peak performance of competition. So for argument's sake, how long do you get to get ready for a fight? If you've got 16 weeks, 
I'd probably look at uh, the drugs that we've discussed already for 12 weeks, then have a bit of a gap as we approach peak performance, and then introduce those more aggressive, no ester, uh, make you more aggressive, give you more power on the day drugs, which also very quickly in and very quickly out of the system. But again, a warning, guys, when it comes to drug cycles for UFC, for MMA, the testing at professional level now is very, very good. It's right up there with weather. And we've argued and answered this on the forums when it comes to these kind of drugs again. They talk about testing. They ask us what we think. And I say, look, how many top professionals, and we've done a podcast on top pros before, where the sample has come back, the B sample, for example, from a test or a sample that was taken two years ago, and two years later, they're failing the drug test. Three years later, they're failing the drug test. So be warned, guys, if you are at that level, you will be tested. Top guys get tested way more frequently than the lower down guys. That's just the nature of the beast. Winners get tested more frequently than losers, and the testing's getting better and better and better all the time. I think when we're talking about Joe, Steve, we're not talking about someone who's at that level. So what he can do to do those things is different from what perhaps a professional with the UFC or any of the televised stuff is. They're under the auspices of the FDA. They're going to have the government cracking whips like the wrestling guys as well. And so they're way more likely to be tested. So therefore, you want to look at drugs very quick and very quick in, very quick out, especially on the day. But you do not want to be caught by the drug testing. And trust me, guys, more and more and more athletes. Steve will pull back me up on this. Get caught every fucking week. Happens all the time. Google it. Look it up. Go onto the forums. We've done the same thing. It'd be this person got caught this week. This person, and it'd be a two-year-old or a three-year-old sample thing. So you need to be careful. Make sure if you come to us for advice, if you go on the forums for advice, it needs to be quick in, quick out if you're competing, especially for pro level. Joe wouldn't have been. So I agree with what Steve said in terms of the drugs. I'd want to watch the pumps, but I might think about those at amateur level, non-drug tested level. I might change those up for the day of a fight versus the training of a fight. It's almost two different ways of looking at it, Steve, for the reasons I've just stated. Back to you. So let's get into the next phase. Mid-50s, Joe Rogan, what could he be using? If you're a guy approaching your, you know, in your, in your 40s, going into your 50s, even 60s, if you're a younger yes. guy and you're thinking of something to maybe help your uncle or your dad or, or your cousin – with what they want to use. So this is an important one. And you could even consider this as a, as a younger person in your 30s, 30s and early 40s who just have an issue with testosterone levels. So Joe's talked about in his podcast something called sports TRT, quote unquote. And sports TRT is something pushed by a lot of anti-aging clinics these days who want to <clears throat> attract more customers, you know, through word of mouth. So yes. it used to be in the United States, hard to get on TRT. You'd have to go to a doctor and he'd be like, no, you're not ready for TRT yet. You're too young or your levels aren't low enough, whatever. So then you go to a different doctor. Then you go to a different doctor. You have to go to six, seven doctors to find one that would agree to prescribe you. And in some cases, no doctor would agree to prescribe you because he didn't think you needed it. Now in the United States, it's easy as hell to get it. It's too easy. And not only are they... It's a business now. Anti-aging clinics pop up. And the way anti-aging clinics do their thing, and I talked about this, is 
They're run by businessmen. So if you walk yes. into an anti-aging clinic, you will not see a doctor, okay? You will see a businessman who's trying to make money. That's what happens. And the way they prescribe whatever they prescribe to you is they send it out to some doctor buddy who they pay on the side in some other state. And that doctor buddy signs a prescription. And that doctor buddy is usually a guy who they're just a shitty doctor, or they could be someone who's like half halfway retired, kind of like an accountant who's like 70 years old, who just has a at-home office who you take your taxes to. We've all had accountants like that. Or it could be just a doctor who's been kind of kicked out of his state for mm-hmm. being either a shitty doctor or doing stuff that were shady. So, and then they'll, they'll be able to hook you up with steroids. So in that situation, they're going to want to give you more than you need because they want to yes. make you feel good and make you happy. Make so they'll put you on something called sports TRT. So mobster, yeah, touch on that. You want to touch Let's on that? Let's real quick, guys. The, if you go off to, and you gently look, the modern age, Steve and I talked about this before on the forums, right? So the argument comes down to, for example, the quality of food, uh, working in an air-conditioned environment, uh, the quality of food, and and and, and for whether you buy it in the shops or whether you're eating in restaurants, full of chemicals, uh, chemicals in your water, if it's unfiltered, for example, uh, if you're around polluted sites, if you're working outside and you're driving a truck on the motorway, all you're doing is breathing in uh, filtered uh, versions of the exhaust from every other vehicle around you, including your own, and so on and so forth. So here's the statistical stuff that backs this kind of thing up. The argument becomes that there's more pollution, more crap, less quality of food than there was, say, for example, in 1950. And that's been proven by the government, the American government itself, to have actually said, if you take this amount of vegetables and you break it all down, there are less good stuff, less minerals, less vitamins in modern food versus food from the 50s and 60s grown more organically with less chemicals and so on and so forth. That the modern lifestyle, using too much plastic in food wraps and all that kind of stuff, lowers the guy's testosterone levels. And then the way that we deal with life, being driven to use our phones, watching YouTube nonstop, uh, trying to pay our mortgages and whatever else, lowers our testosterone levels. So the normal situation would have been in the past that if you exemplified or you you exhibited, should I say, uh, examples of low testosterone, you'd have gone to see a doctor and you would have had your blood taken and they would have said, this is where your testosterone levels should be for your age. And as an example, guys, average jabs, two weeks of test sip, for example, might only be 120 milligrams, 100, 150, somewhere in that range, right? Now, it's become normal on the forums. Uh, I might even look at this sort of thing myself in the next couple of years, where the norm it's 300 milligrams. And the guys say, oh, I need to go on testosterone. And you ask them, and they're 27, you go, listen, motherfucker, you're 27 years of age. Your, your testosterone levels, your T levels, should be just about as high as they've ever been at 26, 27, 28 years of age. Typically, 30, but I would actually say more on average 35 years of age, Steve, that's about the peak, and it starts to drop off after that. But there's an enormous amount of guys on the forums that are using 300 milligrams. In reality, there should be somewhere in the mid-hundred to 200 range. The sports level 
is starts at 300 milligrams and gets up into the 400. Now, you and I know this, Steve. In reality, that's just a low cycle. And then, of course, what we really talked about, which kind of pisses me off a bit, actually, and I'll say this, and it's not a, not a, a pop at Joe, it's just that the, the, the uh, thinking sometimes of these particular people, when they talk about being uh, on CRT, they really mean cruising. And when they're talking about 300 to 400 milligrams a week, they're really doing a cycle nonstop. And then when they're talking about TRT, they say, oh, when I stop TRT, no motherfucker, TRT tends to be for life, forever. It's not something you stop when you suddenly decide you want to have quids. It's not something you stop. That isn't TRT, that's something else. So we need to be very clear on this. Now, Joe is, as Steve said, 54 years of age. He's definitely going to be in the right place in terms of testosterone levels. If he was an average man, an average Joe, his testosterone levels are going to be, what, half what they would have been at 25, 26, 27 years of age? Certainly less than they would have been when he was 30, 35 years of age, Steve. So arguably, and again, he does compete or used to compete. He does still work out. He does still go to the dojo and get his shit done. So in my mind, you're looking, he's 100% in my mind, the guy that's going to do very well on somewhere between two and 300 milligrams a week. Now, whether that's a sports level, especially when Joe was competing, that's arguable. Really, sports level is what you and I would call the small, small cycles. I've done cycles that are what at the level what some guys call sports TRT. And again, I've cycled up for a competition and then I've come off. What I haven't done is stayed on that level nonstop. And that's what these guys are talking about. You're talking about years, guys. Should be, TRT should be, for the most part, if you need to take testosterone as a replacement therapy, CRT, for life. It shouldn't be something you kind of drop in and do for a couple of years and come out. Certainly, if you're doing a sports TRT, then you should go back down to a normal TRT level. But let's be real. Call it what it is. If you've gone to a doctor, if you've had your blood tested, if he says that you're way below or significantly below the average for a man of your age or physical medical condition, et cetera, et cetera, they're not going to tell you. I mean, how often is this, Steve? How often are the guys told to take 300 milligrams a week? Almost, it's a little bit like 5%. Might be one, one, in, one in 20, one in 30, something like that. It's very rare to see that higher. And the sports TRT, starts at 300 and probably creeps up as high as 400 how many t proper trt doctors properly looking at your blood are going to recommend three to 400 milligrams a week almost none of them hence those clinics that we've referred to and but guys call it what it is it ain't trt if you stay on for a couple of years to come off it's not trt if you stay on for six months to come off it's cruising it's blasting and cruising it's high versus low it's competing versus not competing call it what it is so I, I, I would say at 54 years of age, Joe being on TRT, talking about TRT, right, 100%, no problems whatsoever with that. Sports version versus the not sports version, properly dosed versus the making a dose up and be going along with what everybody else says on the forum. Oh, we're all on free. How often do you read about guys that are dosing themselves, Steve, that haven't been tested talking about 100 or 200 milligrams, almost never. It's always 300. So get, get clarify that for me, Steve. What, what you see, what you think on that subject yourself as well. And then obviously we can talk about what Joe's doing. 
Yeah, you summed it up yourself. But let me let me talk about the risks of doing yeah. that much. So really, the point of doing TRT is to replace what your body yes. would normally produce. So in most Wall cases, Street. it's going to be somewhere between 90 and 125 milligrams a week. That's it. Yep. And that's going to put you within what's considered a normal range of yeah. testosterone levels, which is around between, you know, five, 600 nanograms per deciliter up to maybe 700 or 800 at the yes. max nanograms yes. per deciliter. That's it. And your estrogen level should not increase on that dosage. And if it does, if your estrogen levels get a little, little hot, then you back that's off a little bit. There's some guys who can get away with 80, 85 milligrams a week. And that's, that's good for them. So when you run the, the sports TRT, now you're getting into a lot of aromatization where that testosterone is converting into estrogen in the body. That's going to give you estrogenic risks. You're at risk of gynecomastia. You're at risk of water retention, which is going to create insomnia, which is going to create high blood pressure. Yes. You're also at risk for androgenic side effects, uh, cholesterol issues. Because you're introducing a foreign substance into your body, that's going to throw your cholesterol levels off. So you're at risk of, of really straining the crap out of your heart. You're at risk of straining your kidneys. You're at risk of even straining your liver. Um, even though people don't think injectable steroids are liver toxic, they are. Anything really, any foreign substance you put in your body that's a drug or hormone is at excessive amounts is going to strain your liver at certain amounts. So it can all kind of hurt you. So what the what these sports TRT clinics are doing, and in, in Joe's case, if he is on sports TRT, is they'll give them an aromatized inhibitor. And the aromatized inhibitor's job is to normalize their estrogen levels. But it's not going to do anything to help with the other organ strain the, or the inflammation in the body or anything like that. Although it will slightly help with the in, inflammation, but not enough. Another thing that they give for sports uh, sports therapies HGH. So instead of a normal dose for someone who's in his mid fifties that Joe would should be taking, which is about one or one and a half IUs of HGH a day, because again, we're replacing what his body should naturally produce. Yeah. They're going three, four IUs a day. Now the dangers of overdosing on HGH every day for the rest of your life, remember overdosing on HGH is you can put yourself at risk for cancer. You can put yourself at risk for a rise in insulin resistance. You can put yourself at risk for carpal tunnel. Um, so these are all issues that you come, but again, the anti-aging clinics, they wanted that the grift with the anti-aging clinics is they want you to come in. They want you to feel a change really quickly. They want you to bring in your friends that you play tennis with or play poker with or at work. And they want to get you on a monthly payment plan. The monthly payment plan where you come in once a month, they give you all this shit. They give Money you as much up. shit. They also, <laughs> they're going to give you peptides, HCG. Yeah. They're going to give you all kinds of different payments, maybe GHRP. Yeah. I, I, you know, all this stuff, as much shit as they can throw your way. And all that is considered sports TRT. So 300 milligrams a week of testosterone. Three, four I use a day of HGH, which is expensive as shit. So they love that. Oh, yeah. And then they're going to throw peptides. They're going to throw AIs. They're going to throw HCG, which is also a peptide at you. And HGH, of course, is a peptide. So 
that's the grift. You know, they're going to try to get you on as much shit as they can and have you paying them a few hundred dollars a month out of your pocket. And you're going to feel great, you know, but over time, there's going to be negative consequences for doing this. So, Monster, why don't you finish with your final thoughts and take us to the disclaimer? It was a great show. I'll give you an example, guys, right? So I completely get the idea of taking that that sports level, that 300, 400 milligrams. I get it, right? There are guys out there who are salesmen. They're not bodybuilders. They're not athletes. They're salesmen. uh, And they want to be the top dog. They want to be the driven salesmen. They'll be out there kicking ass, getting a million kitchen sales, doing $100,000 worth of business a month and whatever else, right? So the, the, the guys like that have taken drugs. And it includes testosterone. You feel on top of the world. When the whole point of testosterone replacement, especially, is to feel like you felt when you was at your best. When you was an arse kicker on the sales team, when you were leading the troops into battle with the sales team, when you're doing those motivational speeches, you're there going, come on, guys, we're going to do a million dollars worth of business this month. That's kind of what it's like. So I get it. I get it. So like I said, you go to that clinic, and they put you on a sports level, 300 milligrams, and suddenly because you're way more confident, you're, you're, you're way more aggressive, you're way more sexual in the bedroom. There's a huge attraction to that kind of stuff. I get that 100%, but you need to own this shit. You need to understand a few things like I've mentioned already. Typically, it's for life. And you ain't doing the 120, 130, 140 milligrams that the doctor might prescribes you. Steve's mentioned this on the forums when he talks about the levels and people say, oh, my level was only 350. Yeah, that actually puts you in the range of normal, the low end of normal, but normal. And it doesn't, and I mentioned this before on another uh, podcast, or certainly on, on the forum, Steve, when I talk about what's called an affinity, and this applies to a lot of drugs. For example, if it's an alcohol where one person can get drunk on one drink and someone else has to sit there and have 10 drinks, and it comes down to the fact that whether they've been drinking for years or an affinity, the receptors, We've all supposedly got the same number, how sensitive they are. So, for example, I'm a low testosterone cycle kind of guy, but I still wait. I mean, my weight this morning at the gym, dressed without this top on that I'm talking to the Stephen, 317 pounds at six foot three, doing the shit that I do, putting up the numbers that I post about on the forums. So, and at 57 years of age. So, I suspect that I don't need high levels of testosterone in my system but my affinity for testosterone must be quite good. So there's a thing again, 150 milligrams a week for whatever and ever, remember, probably should be fine, where someone else might need to feel like me doing the stuff that I do, need that 300 milligrams, need to feel that particular way. And again, the stresses in life that can drag you down and wear away at you. So whether it's a mortgage, whether it's the going through a divorce, whether it's having to work two jobs and doing this kind of stuff, that will impact your mental thought processes. So testosterone can make you feel and think a certain particular way and, and, and so on and so forth. If you're ill, if you're trying to struggle with certain particular things, if you're coming back from an injury, then these kind of things will help. But you need to own this shit. If you went to a TRT doctor and you got your 120 milligrams a week, that's enough to put you in the mid-range. But if you want to feel like Superman, if you want to feel like something, then, then own the fact that you're taking two, three, four hundred milligrams for that reason. Understand that clinics like that, they can you do that way. I mean, now go back to Joe again, Steve. So we're not going too far off topic here. He's 54 years of age and he's killing it. 
He's killing it in the podcast. He's killing it in the UFC, doing interviews and announcements and so on and so forth. He's killing it by getting to the gym, even when he's tired of doing his stuff. That's not what the average 54-year-old's doing. So for me, the idea that Joe might, for example, be doing a small dose of HGH to stay young looking, to give him a certain level of energy and a certain particular look when he's on camera, even in the podcast, keeps his skin tight, keeps it, you know, keeps the wrinkles down, whatever else, I completely get that. And if he's doing 200, 300 milligrams a week of testosterone prescribed by a doctor, I completely get that because it keeps him where he is right now, which is an incredibly successful person in all of the fields that he's currently involving himself in the podcast, 100%. The UFC stuff, 100%. And like I said, even if it was just him interviewing the UFC athletes, you are around guys whose levels are enhanced or otherwise high. We're in a very macho, very machismo type environment, driven individuals, both controlling the sport and in the octagon. So for you to sit in that particular kind of environment, he's accepted, he's either will be the world's greatest interviewer, or there's going to be a kind of a, a thing about you, the testosterone thing, where you come across and you are perceived in a certain particular way. Steve and I, I mean, I said, without blowing our own trumpets too much, if we go to the gym, if we do what we do, because of the levels that we've been able to achieve, such as it is, we're not world-class professional athletes, but we've been able to achieve a certain particular level where we are accepted by the other guys in what arguably is a macho-slash-driven-slash-competitive environment. So if we go to the gym, we are seen as serious students by those people at the gym. That's how this shoot works. It's how it's going to work for Joe. So, I mean, back, guys, Joe, in his journey, has done stuff where he hasn't always been paid well, but he's done it because he's enjoyed it. He's done it because he wanted to and because he enjoyed it. He's done stuff now where he does it for free because he enjoys it. And he's become, he's chosen, for example, with the UFC to get involved with something that at the time was small and became big because he enjoyed it, because he was doing martial arts himself, MMA and other sports like that outside of the octagon. And it was something that interested him and because he'd learned from comedy how to speak and how to get the best out of people. And his podcast have done the same thing. He started that when no one was doing it and he kept plugging away and getting better and better, better with the, with the acting roles, better and better and better with the comedy stuff. And that enabled him to become a great interviewer. And by doing it and by getting the numbers, attracting billionaires, trillionaires, whatever, to his show, top, top athletes, top, top professionals and a multiple series of fields. And they see Joe as one of their own, a driven, passionate individual. Now, whether that at 54 years of age, guys, is down to sports TRT or even an all sensible level of testosterone, I would like to think that if he does those things now, it keeps him where he is. It keeps him driven. It makes him hungry to do well, like when he would have been 30 and 35 years of age. And the lessons that he learned from those other things in the past built him and made him into the person he is today. But to stay there, to still be to continue to be successful is a difficult thing to do. And our suggestion that sports TRT, for example, performance enhancing drugs, keeps him in the JoJo, keeps him going when he's tired, 
keeps him driven, keeps him passionate, and continues to help, in his particular case, be successful. It's for you to decide whether we're right or we're wrong. Let us know what you think in the comments, guys, as always. Please note, we are not doctors, and the opinions that we do on these shows are hours and hours alone. It's our view, and it's based on the experience and views on the topic. Our podcasts are for informational purposes and entertainment only, the freedom of speech and the freedom of